Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Night March Walking home from work, Carson Mueller gazed absent-mindedly at the night sky. His eyes drifted across the inky black expanse before landing on the moon. It was a waxing gibbous, its lopsided shape quickly approaching the full moon. The mere sight of it made him shudder. Since he was nine years old, since it happened, Carson had been terrified of the full moon. He paid close attention to the lunar calendar and had an extreme aversion to looking at the moon when it was full. Even on a night like that, when it was nearly full but not quite, the sight of the moon, growing round in the night sky, made him extremely uneasy. He'd read once that the word lunatic was derived from an antiquated belief that the cycles of the moon could cause madness and disease. And as he walked home, doing his best to ignore the glowing, bulbous shape in the sky, he wondered if there wasn't something to that strange belief. The moon affected the tide, plant life, even bird migration. Who's to say it couldn't affect human behavior? Carson was especially afraid of the moon that night, Not only because it was nearly full, but also because he'd woken up on a soccer field about six blocks from his house that morning. He thought about his brother as he walked, about how it had all started with something as innocent as sleepwalking for him too. Laird Mueller, his older brother, had just turned 18 when he began tottering around the house in an unconscious state. Within a couple weeks, his late-night adventures took him out of the house and into the surrounding neighborhoods. He'd wake up in the street, in backyards, on other people's porches. And then came that fateful night when, under a full moon, Laird had climbed out of his bed in his sleep, walked downstairs, grabbed a butcher's knife, and made his way out into the early morning darkness, where he stabbed a defenseless jogger to death. Carson could remember the morning with striking clarity, seeing his brother's bloody hands cuffed behind his back, listening to his mother cry hysterically, hearing the chatter over the police radio describing the details of the grisly murder. Jeanette Hayes had been a local nurse who worked the night shift. She got off at four o'clock every morning and had a routine of going for a jog just before sunrise. On that morning, her run took her only a block and a half before she ran into Carson's brother, sleepwalking barefoot through the night. He buried the knife in her chest four times and then proceeded to walk back home and climb into his bed. Laird claimed to have no memory of the crime, but that did little for his defense. He was found guilty of manslaughter seven months later and had been in prison ever since. As Carson unlocked the front door of his apartment and walked inside, 
He wondered if he, too, could carry the same dormant tendency for violence as his brother had expressed. Could he sleepwalk out of his house and kill an innocent person? The very idea made him shudder. He was relatively certain that he couldn't hurt someone, let alone kill them, while he was awake. But in his sleep? Who could say whether he could follow his brother's bloody footsteps? After a quick microwave dinner and a few hours spent absently staring at the TV, Carson hobbled into his bedroom. The fear had subsided by then, and his thoughts had moved on to other things. But when he woke the following morning, with his back propped against the trunk of an old oak tree, his fear returned with a vengeance. Taking in his surroundings, he could gather that he was only a few blocks from his apartment, but, to his accumulating terror, he had no memory of how he'd gotten there. Back at his apartment, Carson decided to call his mother. There were lots of details about his brother's sleepwalking and ultimate crime that Carson had never cared to know, couldn't bear to think about. But now, with his nerves trembling as the harsh morning light crept into his apartment, he decided it was time for him to understand what had happened. Carson's mother, Veronica, had always been a quiet, meek woman. But after Laird's conviction, with the press knocking on her door and calling her house every day, she'd become nothing short of a hermit. When she answered the phone, she sounded reserved and compassionate. Her voice had always had a calming effect on Carson, but on that morning, not much could bring him back from the edge. Mom? he asked tentatively. How did it all start? When she didn't immediately answer, he realized that he'd been far too vague, and clarified, With Laird, I mean. How did it start with him? She seemed confused at first, even reluctant. It was only then that she realized she'd never told him the whole story. But then again, what was there to tell? It wasn't as though any of it made sense. Well, she started, Your brother started exhibiting symptoms when he was a little younger than you, about 18. I know you thought it started with the sleepwalking, but it didn't exactly. He said he would wake up at night and see things. Well, not things exactly, more like a person. But not really a person either. What are you talking about? Carson asked. His mother drew a deep breath. Carson could hear the agitation in it. He said that there was a man outside his window, Veronica went on. Only, not a normal man. He, it, had horns, like antlers, sprouting out from its head. And it had no face, just a black void where one should have been. He said it spoke to him, in his head, told him to do things but he never said much else. Soon, after he started sleepwalking, we took him to see a special doctor, a sleep specialist. But he couldn't help Laird. Pills wouldn't work, breathing exercises. It just got worse. And then, well, you know. Did he ever seem violent? Carson asked. Did he ever seem like he might? No, his mother assured him. None of us could have seen that coming. Carson shivered at the statement. The obliqueness of his brother's crime chilled him. 
and knowing that there had been no warning made him feel oddly dangerous when he considered his own recent sleepwalking patterns. Carson, his mother asked, pulling him out of his contemplations, why are you asking about this anyway? Are you okay? I don't know, Mom, he stammered. Sometimes I just think about it. He didn't have the strength to tell her the truth, though later he would wish he had. That night, as he lay in bed, stricken with fear about the landscapes his sleep might take him to, Carson took two milligrams of Xanax, washing it down with a shot of bourbon. The booze brought a scintillating sensation, a brilliant warmth that danced in his gut. And when he felt the Xanax begin to kick in, the last remnants of bloody wounds and horned, faceless creatures were swept out of his mind. There was only a peaceful darkness left, and he relished in it. His eyes fluttered, taking in the details of his dim bedroom, but without really seeing them. As he slipped into that liminal state between dreams and wakefulness, he noticed something strange. With vague recognition, he could see that there was a door in the wall of his bedroom where there'd never been one before. He blinked several times, unable to determine whether he was dreaming, but the specter of the door remained. As if it were the obvious way to respond, he found himself rising from his mattress and approaching the door with slow, muted steps. The door seemed to ripple, as if it were breathing, as if it were only an aspect of some large, sleeping creature. It perplexed him, but it made him no less willing to approach it. When he touched the knob, he was surprised to find that it was warm, and even more surprised to find that it was unlocked. He pulled it open, and to his astonishment, found that it opened into a thickly wooded forest. How could this be? he wondered, but only in the abstract way of dream logic, when the details of one's surroundings are always inconsequential. He stepped from his bedroom into the forest, could feel the cold moss below his feet, the gritty bark on the trees. Above him, a canopy of stars glimmered brilliantly. As he took one last look back through the door and saw his body sleeping peacefully in bed, something caught his eye. There was a figure standing over his bed. He couldn't make out the intruder's details, but there was one aspect of its shape that shook him with grim certainty. There was a large rack of antlers sprouting out of the figure's head. Carson screamed, jolting him out of the trance-like state that had led him through the door. He ran back towards the opening, but something had come over him. He could barely move, experiencing that distinct, dreamlike sensation of trying to run through water. He was still a few feet from the door when the figure lifted a long, spindly arm and the opening slammed shut. Panicking, Carson tried to force himself awake. He pounded on the door, screamed, slapped himself, jumped up and down, poked himself with sticks but nothing had any effect. He was still stranded in those cold, dark woods. Wondering if, perhaps, he could find another way home, he set out walking through the trees. The looming pines towered over him, making him feel abysmally small by comparison. He could see nothing of man-made origin. It was as if, by walking through that door, he had been transported back in time, or to another world entirely. As he walked, he began to hear what sounded like voices. They were hushed at first, almost imperceptible, 
but then they began to grow louder. It sounded like a chant. Or no, not a chant exactly. It didn't have the right cadence, the right rhythm. It was more like a mantra, repeating cyclically as if to drive home some sinister point. Eventually the words became clear, though their source was still indistinct. An unbearable chill rattled through Carson as he listened. Free their souls, send them home to Father, the voices said, their ominous message repeating ad infinitum. Breathless, Carson began to run, hoping he could somehow outrun the voices, but they seemed to surround him, invading his ears from every direction. On the crest of a small hill before him, Carson could make out an anomalous shape. He wondered, fleetingly, if it was a door, another opening through which he could return to his world. As he approached it, however, he could see that it was a natural formation. No, it wasn't a door, but a cave. A far-off part of him wondered whether it might provide shelter. So, carried on trembling legs, he inched his way towards it. Something halted him, though. There was movement inside the darkened maw, something luminous. Then there were two of them. His jaw fell open, realizing that what he was looking at was a pair of massive, glowing eyes. They floated towards him, the voices growing significantly louder, and louder still as the thing emerged from the mouth of the cave. The only way he could think to describe it was as a minotaur, its gigantic bullhorns seemed to drip with some heinous, dirty liquid, and the mouth of the beast was littered with jagged teeth. It was no less than eight feet tall, its sinewy gray flesh gleaming sickly in the moonlight. In one hand, it held a long, scythe-like blade, but it didn't seem as though the monster intended to do any farm work. If it was planning on reaping something, it was flesh. Carson didn't wait for the Minotaur to begin its approach. He turned and ran. Ran until his lungs burned. Ran until his muscles stung. Until he was so lightheaded he thought he might puke. He could feel the ground below him shaking. Knew he was being pursued. But he didn't dare turn around and look. All around him, the voices repeated their message. Free their souls. Send them home to Father. A few dozen paces before him, he could see the door, still shut. He sprinted towards it, a vague plan taking shape in his mind. When he reached it, hearing the creature's heavy, wheezing breath behind him, he dove to the ground at the foot of the door, burying his face in the loam. He listened as the monstrosity above him smashed through the door. He waited a moment, expecting to feel the cold steel blade slice through him, but nothing happened. He could no longer even hear the voices. Without lifting his head, he crawled through the splintered doorway and collapsed onto the floor of his room. Looking around, he was exceedingly relieved to see that there was no sign of the Minotaur in his room. He breathed a tired, grateful sigh as the dream disintegrated and he fell back into the peaceful darkness of sleep. After what seemed like an eternity, Carson woke, bathed in dull morning light, and crumpled in a heap on the floor of his room. There was only a wall where the door had been the previous night, leaving him with an unremitted sense of gratitude. 
He had every reason to believe that the events of the previous night had been nothing more than a terrifying dream. That was, until he stepped into the shower and watched as streaks of mud ran from his feet to the drain, like the ribbons of a dirty river as seen from the sky. A unique kind of hopelessness pervaded Carson as he stepped into poor Tony's books. After eating what little breakfast he could stomach, he'd gone there with an ambiguous hope that he may find answers. Poor Tony's had a large occult literature section, full of books about rituals and figures seen in dreams, and he wondered if perhaps among those volumes he could find something that would help him. As it turned out, his help came not from a book, but from a person. He was perusing the occult section pointlessly, all the titles going over his head or seeming irrelevant to his situation. A History of Black Magic Societies, Theosophical Rites and Virtues, The Lost Kingdom of Lemuria, The Three Mothers, How Dario Argento's Films Convey Witchcraft. None of it seemed applicable. He was about to give up and head home when a voice called out to him. Looking for something? A pale yet remarkably beautiful girl asked him. She was sitting on the floor thumbing through a book called the Rust Cycle Tetralogy. Long black braids hung over her shoulders, and streaks of rich, dark eyeshadow lined her eyes. She lifted her head, piercing hazel eyes met his, and then seemed to dive right through them as if she were searching for something inside of him. Yeah, I guess, he stuttered, suddenly taken aback. I've just been having weird dreams. Was wondering if I might find something here that could help. He laughed uncomfortably, thinking he probably sounded ridiculous to her. She didn't look at him with ridicule at all, though, but a kind of compassionate seriousness, as if she needed no further explanation to grasp his situation. Maybe I can help, she suggested, getting to her feet. Her scuffed combat boots squeaked against the shiny linoleum floor, and when she stood before him, he was surprised at how tall she was. Carson himself was 6'2", and she was nearly as tall. How do you mean? he asked. Do you have some kind of... Freudian interpretation for me? He cracked a smile, hoping it would blot out some of his awkwardness. Not exactly, she said, but I am a sensitive. Carson frowned. Uh, what? he asked. You know, she plied. A medium. A clairvoyant. Oh, he said, trying not to let his disappointed skepticism come off as insulting. I'm not exactly sure if... His voice faded out, and she quickly filled the silence. I'm sorry about your brother, she said earnestly. Carson was stunned. How could she have known? His photo was never published in any of the news articles about his brother's case. She saw the bleak memories bubbling up to the surface of his face, drawing his features into a dismal grimace. Reaching a sympathetic hand out, she caressed his shoulder, then suddenly drew it back as if it had burned her. What? he asked, but she only looked at him with frightened recognition. After the girl, whose name turned out to be Liska, admitted that she'd felt a dark presence in him, Carson asked if she'd like to get a cup of coffee. He wasn't exactly convinced of her alleged ability, but definitely curious enough to entertain her ideas. And besides, he thought, it wasn't often you got a chance to meet a girl that pretty and mysterious. Liska curtly agreed, and a few minutes later, the two were sitting across a table from each other on the patio of a nearby coffee shop. 
Over tea, Carson explained the harrowing details of his dreams and recent sleepwalking episodes. She listened with a kind of morbid curiosity, and Carson couldn't help feeling a little taken by her. To understand the full extent of the ostensible presence haunting Carson, Liska said she would have to hold his hand, feeling the sensations of his aura. Carson needed no convincing, and while he might have been ashamed to admit it, it had been a while since he'd felt the comforting touch of a woman. Closing her eyes, Liska reached across the table and took his hand in hers. A flutter of joy flowed through him, feeling the warmth of her skin. And even if he wasn't completely sold on her abilities, he could feel a kind of energy coming off her. It rose from her skin like steam, prodding into him as it searched for the source of his peril. When she released his hand a few minutes later, she solemnly pulled her arms to her chest and let her head fall, eyes drooping to the table. What is it? he asked. Her eyes rose to face him. You shouldn't have let it through the door, she said simply. He looked stricken. But I looked around when I got back to my room, he asserted. It was nowhere to be seen. Maybe not its physical body, she said, with dismal acknowledgement. But its intention crossed through. What even is it? he asked, perplexity and terror claiming his features. It calls itself the Father, she replied. It's trying to cross from the dream world into our reality. The human-shaped figure, the one with the antlers that you and your brother have seen, is a being called the Dream Reaper. It's one of several entities that the Father sent into our world to help him cross over. When the Father's intention came through that door, it was the first step in the process of manifesting him in our world. It all sounded ludicrous to Carson. This can't be real. It's insane. But then, when he thought about his brother rotting in prison, it all seemed pretty real to him. How can we stop it, he asked. She sighed, her face rigid with contemplation. When you go to sleep tonight, try to barricade yourself in your room. If you see anything in your dreams, don't follow it. I'm going to go home and prepare a ritual. I'll need until tomorrow for it to be complete, but once it's done, it'll be our best defense. As he walked home, Carson thought about what Liska had said about the father's intention coming through the door in his dream. He wondered if it was too late, if he was destined to succumb to the same gruesome demands his brother had. When he stepped onto the sidewalk a block from his house, he gave pause, noticing the neon sign of a dry-cleaning store above him as it began to flicker and then went out entirely. His legs began to quake, and he quickened his step. But then something stopped him again. Whispers. They seemed to emanate from all around him, slithering out of the darkness and prying into his ears. It was the same mortifying command that he'd heard the night before. Free their souls. Send them home to Father. Only now there was a second part added. Once you feed Father, you too will be set free. He winced at the sound the sickening voices that crept into his ears. With shaking fingers, he put on his headphones, attempting to drown out the voices with music, but he could still hear them, lingering in the quiet spots, trying to find purchase in his head. When she got back to her dingy basement apartment, Liska unsheathed a long white dagger and laid it on the floor. The knife, which was made of a goat's thigh bone, 
was surrounded by other occult instruments of her choosing. Stones, locks of hair, piles of ash, they all surrounded the blade in a semicircle. Chanting, she took the knife and sliced her finger, letting the blood drip freely. When the ceremony was complete, she slipped the dagger back into its leather sheath, confident that she would be able to protect herself when the time came. She knew that the beast was coming, and she knew that she would have to be ready when it got there. As he approached his front door, Carson noticed something strange leaning against his garden shed. It was a scythe, he realized, just like the one he'd seen the father wielding the night before in his dream. The sight of it sent a surge of agitation through him. How had it gotten there, he wondered, looking around uneasily. Just as fast as he noticed it, though, he turned away. Don't acknowledge it, he told himself. Just focus on staying safe tonight and I'll get rid of it in the morning. When he got inside, he pushed his heavy oak dresser against the bedroom door and latched his windows shut. It took a long time for him to even consider sleep. But when he finally did, he was relatively certain that he wouldn't be able to leave his house in his sleep. And, more importantly, that nothing else would be able to get in. He realized he'd been wrong, though, when he awoke a few hours later in a small clearing in the forest. He jerked himself to his feet, panting with shock. It was only then that he realized he was still gripping the handle of the scythe in his hand. Terrified, he threw it to the ground, watching its long, sharp blade dig into the fallen leaves and pine needles. Lifting his head, he noticed a wide, flat structure that stood before him. It was made of rocks, and he wasn't sure why, but it immediately made him think of the word altar. He lifted his hands to his face, looking for blood, for some evidence of the violence that he might have committed in his sleep, but there was none. Only a fine layer of dirt that was ground into the cracks of his hands and the narrow envelope of space beneath his fingernails. Panting, he ran home striking his feet on thorns and sharp rocks along the way. But he paid no mind. He had to get home, had to call Liska, to tell her that they needed to act now. He was starkly aware of the fact that time was running out. We need to do something, he insisted breathlessly when he arrived home and got her on the phone. She heeded his request, telling him to stay calm and that she would be over in a minute. When she arrived, he was still in his pajamas, Pacing back and forth across his living room, his bare feet tracked spots of blood and dirt on the carpet. She tried to calm him, to get him to sit, but he seemed well beyond that. It was only once she informed him that she had completed the protective ceremony that his nerves began to settle. She unsheathed the dagger, showing it to him and explaining that it was their best defense. It wants a sacrifice, he said when he finally allowed himself to sit down. I think it's trying to make me kill someone. Liska bit her lip, unwilling to defy his assertion. You're right, she said plainly. The Dream Reaper has been using your sleep state to build an altar, a place where the Father can cross into our world. See, the Dream Reaper can exist in our physical world, but can't affect it. The Father, on the other hand, it could... Her voice faded as Carson assessed the untold horrors in her silence. It tried to do the same thing with your brother, she went on, but it failed. So, instead, it led him to kill. 
By killing, your brother fed the Dream Reaper, keeping it strong enough to stay in our world, so it could search for someone else to latch onto, someone to finally manifest the Father. And it thinks that someone is you. Carson was speechless, a foreboding silence falling between them. What are we going to do? he finally asked. The only thing we can do, she said, trying to sound reassuring. We wait until the Dream Reaper leads you back to the altar. When it uses you to manifest the Father, I'll... She held the knife out, thrusting it through the air in a stabbing motion. And that'll kill it? Carson asked, not wanting to sound skeptical, but unable to appear completely convinced either. Liska gave him a look that was strong but forlorn. It's the best chance we got, she said, shrugging. It's what the ritual I performed was designed to do. God, I hope you're right, he thought, collapsing into the supple cushions of the couch. The day seemed to drag on, both of them sitting anxiously in his living room, waiting for night to fall so they could just get it over with. Carson was remarkably nervous, petrified even, subconsciously wondering if something terrible was on the cusp of unfolding. But he was glad to have Liska with him. He'd grown to trust her, feeling as though she was his only chance of getting out of this alive. She was perpetually fearful too, but did a slightly better job of hiding it. She knew that their best chance of being successful lay in maintaining focus and doing the right thing when the time came, and she had spent a long time preparing for something like this to happen. She felt like she was born to do it, in fact. When darkness came, they set about hatching their plan. Carson would go upstairs and try to sleep. Liska would sit outside in her car waiting for his sleeping figure to come walking out of the house. When it happened, she would grab the dagger and follow him to the altar. Feeling hopeful, Carson returned to his room while Liska went out to her car. She spent the next few hours reading, struggling to stay awake. Luckily, the driver's seat in her car was stiff and uncomfortable, even when reclined, and any time she got close to nodding off, one of its rusty old springs would prod at her, drawing her back to attention. It was just after three in the morning when it finally happened. Liska flipped the page in her book, and as she did, something stirred in her peripheral vision. She watched as Carson hobbled out of his apartment, eyes open but unseeing. His pupils were rolled back in his head, giving his face a garish look. But Liska didn't allow the sight to irk her. She thought quickly, sticking to the plan. Grabbing the knife, she slipped out of the car shutting the door as silently as possible. As he tottered through the woods, Liska followed a few dozen paces behind him. She was careful to avoid fallen branches and piles of leaves, knowing that any sudden sound or movement could shake him out of his precarious state. When he arrived at the altar, Liska lowered herself behind the trunk of a fallen tree, feeling at the handle of her knife with a sweaty palm. Carson stooped, as if under someone else's control, and lifted the scythe from a pile of fallen leaves. What happened next was something not even Liska was prepared to see. His body began contorting, folding at impossible angles while he emitted a strange, alien-sounding chant. It poured out of him in rhythmic exhalations as his joints cracked and bent. She wanted to look away, but knew that if she did, she might miss her chance. As he writhed around before the altar, 
she could see a luminous form begin to take shape above it. A cloud of crimson light was forming, first as a simple orb, and then elongating, assembling itself into a monstrous shape. It pulsed, beginning to solidify into the shape of the father. Its jagged maw hanging open, red eyes staring, it descended to the surface of the altar. Long, spindly arms took shape, and sordid hoofed feet sprouted out of its torso. It looked like it had fully manifested, but still continued to grow, its tall, wiry frame ascending through the night air. Sharp, gleaming horns stood stiff atop its head, and a mass of spiky, tooth-like protrusions glistened in its wet mouth. Carson's sleeping form rose, holding up the scythe, presenting the father with his weapon of choice. Liska let not another second go by before springing from her hiding place. Darting through the darkness, she threw herself between Carson and the monstrosity that stood above him. Blade in hand, she swung her arm in a long, wide arc. The attack was so swift that it was almost imperceptible, but she saw it, saw the moment occur, just like she had trained herself to do. She watched as the dagger's edge slid effortlessly through Carson's neck, watched the blood pour hot from his jugular and spill onto the stones below. Wiping a splatter of blood from her cheek, she turned, head bowed, watching the crimson pool accumulate at her feet. Wordlessly, the beast stepped down from his throne and began to feed. Liska smiled proudly welcoming the arrival of her father. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.